Amen. Well, good morning. You know how awesome it is to say that and actually to have it to be morning? Like, it is really awesome, all right? Like, if you're just tuning in and you have no idea what that inside joke was all about, we have been doing our live worship services on Friday nights and at like 6, and so every Friday night at like 6.30, I would get up and go, good morning, and it was 6.30 p.m., and it was just weird, Okay. But it is not weird. So if you're tuned in, this is live this morning, and it is amazing to see you guys here. Super excited to be able to worship with you. This sold out in like a day, and you don't have to buy a ticket, but you do have to pre-register. So that was exciting and encouraging to us. I think it says something about the value of this, and the value of this is really, really high. We get not only to sing of God's faithfulness, but where does he teach us about his faithfulness? He teaches us about his faithfulness in his word. He engrafts us into a family that goes all the way back through all of these different biblical characters. And that's what we've been doing. So what we've been doing, if you've missed it, is we are looking at the infinite greatness of Jesus, like the surpassing excellence of Christ, and we're doing it in kind of an unusual way. We're doing it through the lens of the lives of some of the other great characters in the Bible who are admittedly amazing. And like we look at these people, and as flawed as they are, as Matt said, they're also pretty incredible, and then we see that Jesus is just infinitely more incredible. And the person that we come to today is Ruth. And as we come to Ruth, here's what I want you to hear. When I say Ruth, I want you to hear vulnerable, okay? So here's the deal. Ruth equals vulnerable, at least back then. You might not like it. I might not like it. In fact, I don't like it. But we've got to find Ruth in the day and in the age in which she lived. And we need to understand her situation as it was back then and rejoice that it's not that way for women now. But it certainly was back then. And what that created was a woman who was entirely vulnerable. And I'll tell you why. She was vulnerable, first of all, because she was a barren widow, and that's actually two reasons wrapped into one, but Ruth lived in a day and in an age in which the protection and the provision for women were tied directly to their husband, or if their husband died, to a son that hopefully they had with their husband before he died, who can inherit their husband's land, who can step into their husband's role, and who can take care of his mom. And they lived in a day and age, Ruth did, in which the primary purpose of marriage, guys, was to have children and in particularly to have that son. And you can understand that urgency from the perspective of a woman whose protection and provision comes entirely from either the husband or the son the husband leaves behind. So she's like, let's get to having kids because I'm going to need somebody to take care of me if you're gone. Otherwise, I'm completely vulnerable. And he's like, let's get to having kids because I need somebody to inherit my part of my family's land because if I die and I don't have an heir, my part of my family's land goes to the rest of the relatives. And my name is extinguished from the earth. So primary purpose, have kids. All right, when we pick up the story of Ruth, we find a woman who's been married, and now her husband has died. And they no doubt tried to have a son, tried to have any child, and she's had no child. So what is the presumption? It's not necessarily true. In fact, the way her plays out, her life plays out seems to indicate that it's not true, but the presumption, particularly in her day and age, in which they did not have any kind of sophisticated understanding of procreation or biology, okay, is that she's barren. So what is her first label? It's barren. And here's the deal. If your protection and provision comes from a husband or a son the husband leaves behind when he dies and the primary purpose of marriage is have children and you've been married and you've tried to have children and therefore then proved that you could not, at least apparently, who's going to marry Ruth? Ruth equals vulnerable. 
but it's worse than that because as you get into her story, you realize that she's a Moabite. She's not an Israelite, but she's a Moabite woman who is going to move from Moab across the Jordan River into the nation of Israel. And in that move across the Jordan, she picks up all kinds of additional labels that are going to be massively unattractive in Israel. So, for example, all the Israelites knew that the Moabites were a race of people that were born out of drunkenness and incest. So that's her family heritage. And that's a label, incestuous. They knew that these Moabite women at one point in history tried to sexually seduce the Israelite men. So what's the other label? Promiscuous. They knew that the the Moabite people had kind of hired a guy, a prophet, to try to curse the Israelites. But God had come to him and said, oh, no, no, you're going to bless the Israelites. I'm going to tell you who to curse. You're going to curse the Moabites. Cursed, another label. She's coming over to Israel as a Moabite woman who is a part of a a people who have an evil, awful God called Chemosh. And do you know how they worship that evil, awful God, at least in part? They would take some of their kids and sacrifice them. Murderous. So let's rehearse. We've got barren, incestuous, promiscuous, cursed of God, my personal favorite, and murderous. And again... Protection, provision found in a husband. I mean, who in Israel is going to marry this woman, no matter how amazing she is? Ruth equals vulnerable. So her story begins in actually an Israelite household, a family in Bethlehem, which, by the way, means literally house of bread, and the husband's name is Elimelech, and the wife's name is Naomi, and they have two sons. One is named Machlon, which means sterile, and the other one is named Kilion, which means spent. So these people named their kids sterile and spent. Why would they do that? They would do that because it was common in those days for people to name their kids after what was happening in the life of their nation, and both spiritually and agriculturally, and one mirrors the other all the way through this story. This nation was sterile and spent. And they tried to hang in there. God brought a famine and judgment on their wickedness because of their spiritual deprivations. He deprived them agriculturally. And this family gave up on God. Like it's like the, you know, the, the famine got worse and it got worse. And they're like, we're with you, Lord. We're, 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 we're with you. We're, we're sort of with you. Like, you know, we're, we're barely with you. We're giving you our 30-day notice. Like this is it. If this doesn't change, we've got to go. And they left. They took sterile and spent, and they went the other way across the Jordan. They went over to Moab, and they took up their life there. It's really just a different way of saying they went looking for bread outside of the will of God for them, because it was never the will of God for them, for Israelites, to live in Moab, and yet the reality is we do that all the time. It's like we're hanging in there with the Lord, you know, and the pain level's rising, the loneliness level's rising, the vulnerability level is rising, the whatever level it is that's agitating you is rising, and it's just going up and up, and you're like, I'm with you, Lord, I'm with you, I'm barely with you, I'm, I'm just hanging on by, you know what, here's my 30-day notice, I'm out. And we go looking for bread in the land of Moab, outside of the will of God for us. And here's the deal. You know, that bread can satisfy for a short period of time. Like sometimes it brings short-term relief. But every time, long-term, it brings death. And that's exactly what happens with this family. So they move to Moab, sterile and spent, marry Moabite women, Ruth being one, and somebody named Orpah being the other, 
So lots of great parental names if you're pregnant, you're looking for things, right? Amazing. And then Elimelech dies. And then Sterile dies. And then Spent dies. And leaves Naomi with no husband, no sons, and two Moabite daughters-in-law. And Naomi comes to them and says, look, guys, I, you know, I hear that there's bread in the house of bread, which is my hometown, incidentally, of Bethlehem, and so I'm just going to go back. I mean, the reality is I'm an older lady. I've had my children. I'm not going to have any more children. God gave me sons. God took my sons and my husband. I'm completely vulnerable. I'm an Israelite in Moab. Who's going to want to take care of me here? I feel better about the welfare system of Israel than I feel about the welfare system of Moab, at least there. You know, like there are people I went to high school with, and I have relatives, and you know, maybe they'll be nice to me. So I'm out. I'm going home. I'm going to go back. And both girls say, well, you know, we'll go with you. <laughs> and she looks at him like, will you? And the way I picture it is she marches them up to the Jordan River. Like that's the moment. You're either staying or you're going. And she stops and says, all right, so let's have a conversation about this. Because I don't think you guys are thinking very clearly. Let me re- run through the labels, all right? So barren, but it's not just that. Because when you cross the river, okay, now incestuous, promiscuous, cursed of God, that's kind of a biggie, and murderous. Guys, like it or not, we live in a day and in an age in which our protection and provision are tied to a husband or a son the husband leaves behind when he dies. You guys have been married, proved, allegedly, apparently, that you can't have children. So it's going to be tough enough for you to find a husband in Moab, for crying out loud. In Israel, you have no shot. And I'm much older than you, and at some point, I'm going to even be gone, and then I'm going to leave you behind. A Moabite woman, a single lady in Israel. Come on. It makes no sense. Why should you leave your country and your relatives and your father's household? And go there. Go home. Talk it out with your dad. They'll take you in. You know, maybe somebody will marry you here. Like, you have no shot there. You at least have a shot here. And the welfare system here will probably be more favorable toward you than it will there. Because you're a Moabite. And Orpah says, that is an excellent argument, and I'm out. I'm going home to my dad. I'm going to go back to my country and relatives and father's household and our gods, our God of death. And Ruth, on the other hand, issues one of the greatest statements in the Bible. It says that she clung to Naomi like she's not going to let her go. In Ruth 1, beginning of verse 16, it says, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And Naomi says, all right, well, I warned you, you know. And so they go to Bethlehem and they arrive at the time of the barley harvest, which by all accounts seems to be pretty abundant. So what does that mean? I mean, if the agriculture is tied to the spiritual condition, it means that things have changed a bit. Things are looking up. It's favorable. And they begin their lives, guys, as wards of the state. 
The way that it worked in Israel is that if you were a wealthy landowner and you had crops, you had a barley harvest, for example, okay, you could glean your fields, obviously, but you could only glean them once, not twice, not three times, not five times to make sure you didn't miss anything. You could glean them once and try to get it all, but everybody understood that, you know, there would be accidentally a little bit of barley here and a little bit of barley there and a few grains here and a few grains there. I mean, just, you know, little kernels and husks and whatever barley has, I have no idea, and you could just pick them up as you go. And so what would happen is the poor were allowed to come out behind the gleaners of the fields who could only glean once so that there was at least a little something left behind and they could eke out an existence, guys, by picking up a little barley here and, you know, a little barley there. And I don't know, maybe we can make a sandwich at the end of the day. That's the idea. And Ruth comes to Naomi and says, look, we we have a relative that you've been telling me about And his name is Boaz. And by the way, his name means in him is strength. That beats the heck out of sterile and spent. Can we agree on that? In him is strength. What does that imply? The ability, at least, to protect and provide. But is the willingness there? So she says, you've told me about this, Boaz. He's a close relative. He's a wealthy guy. He's got a whole field full of barley. I think what I'm going to go do is in accordance with that welfare system, I'm going to go follow his gleaners. Are you okay with that, Naomi? Naomi says, that's a great idea. You go do that. And then Ruth goes out to do that. And what's interesting about this story to me is every time I get to that place in the story, I stop and in my mind, I can see the fields. Like I've stood where the fields were several times. And you know what you can see from the fields on a, on a clear day? You can see the mountains of Moab. They're right there. I mean, it's like if there were mountains here in Fort Lauderdale and mountains in Delray Beach. You know, on a clear day, if you were standing up on top of the mountain here in Fort Lauderdale, you'd be able to see the mountains in Delray. Same deal. So here is this woman, Ruth. And she's left everything. She's entirely, completely vulnerable. Ruth equals vulnerable for all the reasons I've explained. She has no, humanly speaking, reason to think that that's ever going to change for her. She is eking out an existence together with her mother-in-law, who she knows is not going to be around for forever, by picking up little pieces of barley. You know, she goes behind the gleaners and and that's it. Like, that's the life assigned to her for as long as she lives, at least as far as she knows. And she does that in the heat of Israel, day after day, in full view of the mountains of Moab, which looked to her at least like the land of opportunity, but she doesn't leave. Ruth heads out to the fields of Boaz, and she catches the eye of Boaz himself, and probably not because she's physically beautiful, even though she might have been stunningly beautiful. She certainly is beautiful of soul. But the oddity is what strikes him. Why is there a Moabite woman gleaning in my fields after my reapers? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, she needs to go back to the welfare system over there. Why is she engaged in our welfare system? We've got enough people to feed of our own. Like, why do we have a Moabite woman gleaning in my field? And so he calls one of his servants over and says, hey, what's the story with this? And the servant tells him the story. So now he knows every one of the labels she's wearing. And with that knowledge, having heard the story, he calls her over. And it's amazing. 
Ruth 2, verse 8, it says, then, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my, and then the next word is the key word, my daughter. What is he saying? He's saying, you're not a Moabite. You're an Israelite. What did Abraham, the author of the race of Israel, if you will, do? Abraham, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your relatives. I want you to leave your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. You don't become an Israelite by DNA. You become an Israelite by the DNA of that kind of faith. That kind of faith that says, I am leaving a lot behind and I am going with God and it's all gain. That's what she's done with no hope of getting any of that back. She's like, all right, so I don't have this, but I have God, and I don't have that, but I have God, and I don't have this other thing, but I, don't, I have God, and I don't have any hope of in this life anything changing for me, except maybe it's going to get worse. Like, who's going to glean the field for me when I'm old? Like, but I have God. She's a great biblical character. Boaz says to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, and I love this, he says, do not go to glean in another's field or leave this one. You have found your field. It's right here. But keep close to my young women who are gleaning in my field ahead of you and let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? What does that say? It says that Ruth equals vulnerable. But that also says that in the fields of Boaz, she's safe. In him is strength and now protection. But more than just protection, there's also provision. He invites her to the waters of Israel. He says, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then later in the story, he invites her to his own table, to the table of Israel, and he personally serves her bread. He's feeding her. It's provision. And in between, here's her response. It says, then Ruth fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to Boaz, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner and as a result, I wear all these labels. I mean, you remember, it's like, it's barren, it's incestuous, it's promiscuous, it's cursed, it's murderous. I mean, like, what else can there be? How do you add to that? And what's the answer to that? And not just for her. What's the answer to that for me? What's the answer to that for you? What's the answer to that to all who will come to the true Boaz, who is Jesus? The answer to that is he takes our labels. Labels that have been given to us by our family, you know, they're part of our heritage. <laughs> labels that have written, written up by a teacher or a coach or somebody we used to be married to or used to date or whatever. Labels that we've earned fully, like with the permanent ink, we've written for ourselves this particular label and put it on our forehead and labels, by the way, that we cannot in our own power make go away. Like, I've got it, and I can't get rid of it. And what is Jesus doing in the gospel? He is coming to me, and he's coming to you, and he's saying, listen, when you come to me, I take your labels upon my brow, and I put every one of them to death in my death, and I am risen from the dead to offer you a completely new set of labels. And they're awesome. They're not just noticed but they're not less than noticed. They're labels like noticed, loved, forgiven, filled, valued, protected, provided for, healed, worthy, victorious. They're labels like free, and you're like, from what? And there's like a hundred answers to that. I'm going to give you two. 
Guilt and shame, which are not, by the way, the same thing, but they live in the same house. Guilt comes to me and it comes to you and it says, I did something bad. And shame comes and says, let me explain why that is, okay? Because here's my message, I am bad. That's why. Guilt comes and says, okay, all right, I failed. Shame's like, well, there's a reason for that. You know, it's pretty simple math, actually. I am a failure is what shame says. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, oh, listen, you are a mistake. Can we just agree on that? And Jesus steps into that mess and blows up that whole house. He's like, no, 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 be free of that. I came to free you from that whole conversation, authentically, really, truly. And here's what that does. Ironically, it, it frees you and I to be vulnerable. And I don't mean economically vulnerable. That's, I mean emotionally vulnerable. And emotional vulnerability is a really big deal. And the reason for that is because, first of all, I mean, look, a story of failure, a story of hurt, a story of betrayal, a story of abuse, a story of tragedy, a story of heartbreak, a story that might be embarrassing if told. All right, if it's never told because you're too embarrassed, you're afraid to be vulnerable, is never redeemed. Nobody wins. Nobody gains. Like, I can't gain from how God has worked in your life through your failures if you're going, ah, I don't think I can share that with anybody because I just, you know, I just, it's embarrassing and it's humiliating and it's blah, 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 blah. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Your identity is in me. And that's secure. And that frees you to be vulnerable. Share your story. Tell it. Proclaim it. And let it be redeemed. Let the good come forth from it in the lives of other people. But it's also vulnerability, the key to being fully loved. And everybody everywhere wants to be really and truly, authentically, deeply, and fully loved. We just, we all do. But you can't be fully loved if you're not fully known, and you can't be fully known if you're holding back because you're afraid to be vulnerable. You know, you're going, well, I mean, if they knew this about me, well, then would they still love me? And then really, if you do the math, you realize, you know what, if they don't know this about me, then they don't actually love me. They love the caricature of me that I've presented, but that isn't actually me. And God's like, look, I have personally witnessed everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever said. I know all of your motives. I know absolutely everything. Like, because of the way I'm constructed, I am 100% present in your life 100% of the time. So I know it all, and I love you. Let that fill you up. And from that place of, you know what, I'm full with his love, then you be you. You be free to share what you've done, to reveal the whole heart and the whole life, and from that place to love and be loved, to be known and and to know. Boaz protects Ruth. Boaz provides for Ruth. It's cool. He calls like the gleaners in his field over and he's like, all right, so here's the deal. You see the Moabite lady? And they're like, yeah. All right, she's going to be following you from now on. I've told her don't go to any other field. So this is her field going forward and that's it. We're going to protect her. I already talked to the guys, but here's what I want you to do, okay? Uh, She's going to be gleaning after you and I want you to leave stuff behind on purpose. Like at the end of the day, I don't want her walking home with a pocket full of barley. I want her to like fill her robe up with it and maybe need a wheelbarrow. Got it? They're like, yes, 
But it's better than that. Because as the story progresses, he does the unexpected. The impossible to believe in when she crossed over the Jordan River. The impossible to believe in as she like labored in the heat in full view of the mountains of Moab. He marries her. It's crazy. He steps into the role of what was known in that day and age as the kinsman redeemer. I'm going to use brothers because I just think it's the clearest way to explain this. But it applied to close relatives. And remember, he was a close relative. All right, so here's the deal. If you're a guy and you have a brother and your brother died and he left his wife without children or without a son to inherit his part of the family allotment of land and to take care of her as she goes forward in life, then you would step into the role of the kinsman redeemer and you would marry your sister-in-law, which I know is super awkward, but imagine it from her perspective, okay? And what is the goal of this? It's to give her a son, It's to provide protection, it's to provide provision, and it is to give her a son so that after you're gone, she's provided for. But more significantly, too, it is to have somebody, it is to raise up an heir in the place of your brother for your brother who will himself then inherit your brother's part of the land. So then what does a kinsman redeemer do? I mean, when you just think it through in broad strokes, a kinsman redeemer acts in such a way as to give life to the dead. You're acting on behalf of your brother. And the son that you have with your sister-in-law is legally your brother's son. You give life to the dead and you do it at your own expense because if you don't do this, then what? Then you get your dead brother's share of the land. So it's costly. Boaz does exactly that with Ruth. He marries her and together they have a son named Obed who inherits her first husband's part of the estate, and who will then take care of her after Boaz, who's much older, dies. But Obed becomes the father of Jesse. Jesse becomes the father of David. If that doesn't sound significant to you, David was the king of Israel, and it is through the line or the lineage then of David that Jesus Christ many generations later is born, which makes Ruth, the Moabite woman, who left everything but had God, Okay, it engrafts her into the bloodline of Christ himself, which is a remarkable thought. And it's a beautiful picture of the gospel in which God, through Jesus, who is so much greater than Boaz, who is clearly the Christ figure. I mean, in him is strength. Now, wait a minute. I mean, he had a lot and all. But in Jesus' infinite strength, God, through Christ, comes to people who are widowed of soul, who are barren of heart, who have questionable heritages, who have scandalous pasts who have long spent their times rejecting the fields of Israel, if you will, and looking for bread in the fields of Moab, and who against all odds through Christ are brought near and called what? Son or daughter. Jesus is the true Boaz. Incidentally, he was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And what does he invite us to through faith in him? He invites us to his feast, his table, in which he offers to us the drink of the wine of his blood and the bread that is broken of his body for you. It's remarkable. And it's through faith in him that we are redeemed, that we are made whole. He takes us as his own. He gives us eternal life. He gives us an inheritance his own inheritance, and he does it all at his own expense. And with that life, he gives us new labels. Noticed, loved, forgiven, 
filled, valued, protected, provided for, healed, worthy, victorious, and free from lots of things, including guilt, which says, ah, you know, you did something bad, and shame, which says, let me explain that to you. You are bad. And Jesus is like, not so for my kids. We're not going to do that. I died to get rid of that voice forever. The voice of Christ says, you are loved. Man, that's a different message. Feels very, very different to me. So in closing, I'm just going to ask you this. What are your labels? You know, the ones that your parents gave you or teacher or friend or former whatever, you know, like, you know what they are. What are the ones you've written for yourself and you put on there and it won't come off? What are your labels? Secondly, what is the bread of life to you right now in the midst of this famine that we're all in? Like, what are you looking to for comfort? What are you looking to for encouragement? What are you looking to to just get through? Like, what is the bread of life to you? And is it inside or outside of the will of God for you? And if it's inside of the will of God for you, you just kind of hanging on? I'm still with you. I'm barely with you. Okay, Lord, I've given you my 30-day notice, you know, like, because I can see the mountains of Moab. And I almost don't care about the long-term death. I just need some short-term relief. And lastly, will you bring your labels and your need for bread to Christ? Because he's the only one who can take them off and replace them with what is authentically yours through faith in him. Because you didn't earn it. He did. And then he gave it to you as a gift. And he is himself alone in all the universe, the bread of life. So will you bring your labels to Jesus and exchange them for the labels that he laid down his life to give to you and receive from him what you're not going to find short-term or long anywhere else? That's the challenge, okay? And I pray that you will. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for your word and for this amazing woman whose story you have captured so beautifully and artfully for us. God, you are the great storyteller, and we pray that your spirit would open this story up for us in such a way that we see ourselves in it, but more significantly, that we see Jesus and all that he offers to us in it. And I pray that you would humble us before him. You would reveal to us the futility of any other kind of bread, that you would graciously show us the labels We've been given and earned. And then in love and in an even greater grace that you would remove them as you draw us to yourself through faith in Jesus, the true Boaz, the one in whom alone is eternal strength. Bring us to yourself, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.